I think it's going to take a lot to heal, but I think that we're at the, at the very beginning where people are listening and wanting to do something different, are thinking that they can do something different. I think that they're finding the power to move in different ways. Greetings, relatives. My name is Melissa Nelson, and I'm your host and gardener. Welcome to the Native Seed Pod, a podcast aimed at celebrating the diversity and beauty of native seeds, soils, and indigenous foods. Well, Karina Gould, what an honor to have you here at Heron Shadow again. Yeah, it's beautiful to be here. And, and the weather is perfect right it's now. Divine. It is. It's a beautiful breeze coming through. The sun's out, but it feels so good. And the land just feels really good here. Mm. Thank you for inviting us again. Oh, it's such a joy to have you here. And you were really one of the first groups that blessed us with that land justice, whatever it was, land justice <laughs> conference or meeting that we had i think it was march of 2019 there were about, about 30 40 of us yeah. from the bay area who came up to look at a hundred year land plan for indigenous land rematriation that was powerful yeah yeah i still hold on to those ideas and i talk about them it's like what would it be like for us to go back into smaller village-like settings and and to reclaim the waters again and to open them up in our urban areas but and it was great and this is this land we since we've been here has transformed so much it's amazing what has happened here when you put humans back in touch with the land that's right yeah yeah well i saw you do the same thing at uh himetka and the lishan the village of lishan there in oakland i mean incredible when it was just I mean, planting justice was nice, but the work that you and the Sigorte Land Trust have done there has just been extraordinary. So for some of our listeners who may not be as familiar, if you want to just introduce yourself and maybe a little bit about Sigorte Land Trust, and then I'll ask you a bit more about some of your specific programs and good work. Yeah. So my name is Karina Gould. I am the co-founder of the Sigorte Land Trust. I also am the tribal chair for the Confederated Villages of Lashon and co-founder also with Indian People Organizing for Change. So wear a lot of different hats. Sigorte Land Trust is the what we call is the first urban indigenous women-led land trust in the country, maybe the world, I don't woo-hoo, know, who knows. Woo-hoo, woo-hoo, I think so. <laughs> but it really started because out of our work for protecting the sacred, And that's how our work really started. And really being homeless in our own homelands as Lashan people and knowing that all of these ancestors were in all of these institutions and praying for them to come back without a land base, we didn't have anywhere to bring them to. And so really that's where the idea came from. Well, it didn't actually come from there. We didn't know what a land trust was. We took over a piece of land 
that had two of our sacred sites in Vallejo in 2011 for 109 days. And we just had the 10th anniversary yesterday wow. of when we left that land. Mm. And for 109 days, we all lived there together and prayed and had ceremony and really stood for that land. And then the land transformed us. And Beth Rose invited me to a land trust meeting of native land trusts. And we really had no idea what a land trust was, but I trusted Beth Rose and I went to this meeting and found out that there were both federally recognized and non-federally recognized tribes that were getting back land, either buying it back, buying back their sacred sites or having long-term leases on land, small pieces of land to tell their story. And I came back to Oakland and I talked to Janella about it and I said, I think this is a tool we hadn't had in our tool belt for all these years. And what do you think about it? And she agreed, um, although we weren't sure what we were agreeing about. But you know, when, it, when you work with someone for so long, you kind of just trust each other that, yeah, let's figure this out. But we also talked about this whole idea of um, when I went to the land trust meeting, the Native Land Trust meeting, it was almost all men. Mm-hmm. Like, they were all men. They were all, they men. were all men. Yeah, there was a few women that were like support, but there was no women that were running them. And I always tell this story about Dune Lankard, right? Love and, Dune. Yeah, Dune's a great, and that's mm-hmm. when I first met Dune. And he was at this meeting and told this incredible story about how he was able to save like 140,000 acres of their tribal territory after the Exxon Valdez spill. And we were having lunch one day and I said, hey, Dune, is this a boys club? And he laughed. (laughs) And he said, yeah, kinda. And he said, not only native land trusts, but all land trusts are run by men. And I told that story to Janella and her and I began to talk about what does it mean? You know, and how does that really, how does that really look in the world with men being in charge of land? And historically, when you look at it, you you find that it just correlates with, you know, what has happened to our land, has happened to women's bodies, the destruction, the sacredness being taken out, the raping, you know, the extraction. And so we really began to have these conversations about bringing balance back in. And as indigenous women, what does that balance look like? And that's why we decided to have an indigenous women-led land trust in my territory, but it's also an indigenous women-led land trust, indigenous women, not just the lonely women. That's right. And that's important because the United States had these, you know, the relocation program that happened and so many native women came into our territory and three generations from, you know, over now, there are some families that have never gotten to go home, never got to go back to their reservations. The children that my kids grew up with didn't have never been home. Mm. And so it's important that we have places and spaces for indigenous people to put their hands in the ground, to be themselves, to talk about revitalizing language and song and ceremony. And so that's why it's the an indigenous women-led land trust. Yes, I think that's such an important movement because, as you know, you know, through the Cultural Conservancy, we too were involved with some of that movement. And it was just uncanny how many land trusts and then the Native Land Trust were just really male, male-centric. And I think Segura Tay's explicit focus on women as land stewards and women as seed keepers and women as medicine makers 
and really women as the leaders in the governance structures, you know, so going back historically during the Indian Allotment Act with my, you know, Trinidad Chippewa tribe and so many of the federally recognized tribes were allotted and broken up and then they only gave the land to the male head of household and all these women who were really the stewards and the the managers of the land that was one way we lost millions of acres of our traditional lands and so to return women at the front and center of leadership i think is just so wise and so important so happier doing that and really setting a standard i think for a lot of other communities around the country and around the world And Sigurte is, you know, setting the standard on a lot of incredible other tools in the indigenous revolution. And one of them is the Shuumi tax. Tell us a little bit about the inspiration for that and how beneficial it's been for your communities. Mm. Thank you for that. Shuumi is a, is a blessing, you know. I think this entire this entire movement is a blessing right now. But Shumi was, was something that we just kind of softly put out there when we opened up our website. And it was a couple of actually allies that came to me and they said in different times and said, have you heard about this land tax that's happening with the Weop people up north? And I had, but I hadn't thought about it. They said, well, what if we do that here in the Bay Area? So we asked permission, actually, to use that. And it was um, Tia Peters, I believe, mm -hmm. up at Seventh Generation when the Wiats got an island returned to them and didn't have money to support cleanup of this island they were given back, of course, yes. um, if she could start that. And they said yes. And so we decided to do that. And we actually, it was Ariel and his wife and his father that created this platform to put on our website and at a thanks taken event that was an annual event that happened in the bay area this sunday before thanksgiving they we just soft launched it on our website 
and our allies and accomplices. And I think that this really has to do with relationship building, though, mm. is because the work that Janella and I did for all of those years around sacred site protection in the Bay Area, that people knew the work that we had been doing. We had gone to Segorite, which is in Vallejo on the Carquina Strait, and took over that land for 109 days, that people understood the work that we're doing in the Bay Area. Um, and so it was word of mouth, really, that mm. it started to spread about the Shumi tax. And so it allows people that live and work on our territory to, to pay an honorary tax. Shumi in our, in our language, the Chochenyo language means gift. And people are just able to do that. And, and it's really helped us. It's taken off in the Bay Area in a way that I had never thought possible. And we are really blessed to be partners with all of those people that pay their annual or their monthly donations in order for us to do the work on the land and to really do, to really bring back the works that we want to do around rematriation. Mm, that's fantastic. And then, so anybody who lives in your territory can donate $5 or $5,000 to Segorite Land Trust as a voluntary tax to acknowledge your original sovereignty as the original caretakers of that land. Yes, and That's it's wonderful. So powerful. And I heard recently you had a historic occurrence happen with Alameda, the city of Alameda, or the county, or no, was the it city. the city? Yeah, so tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, a few a few months ago, we were involved in changing the name of, of a park. It was Andrew Jackson Park. Oh. And, oh. Uh, you know, as we went through COVID and we went through this whole uprising or after George Floyd was killed, you know, people began to question the names of places and names started coming down and statues started mm -hmm. coming down. And this had actually started before all of that but that really helped to push it forward. And there was a group of about 13 residents in Alameda that really was pushing for this change. And finally were able to get a hold of us and ask for our blessing to change it, either to Ohlone Park or Chochenyo Park. And um, really, I wanna say that my daughters, Deja and Cheyenne, really did that work with that community. And so we just celebrated the renaming of that park to Chochenyo Park. But also there was a city council member on uh, the Alameda City Council who pushed the city council to pay Shumi, which is the very first time a city in our territory has paid a tax. And so mm. they have granted a tax for the next two years and are really going to work with us to do a campaign throughout the city of Alameda to get residents to also pay that Shumi. Incredible, congratulations on all that hard work. That must feel so good. I mean, the Ohlone people not being federally recognized and, you know, given an extinction sentence by Alfred Kroeber in 1925. I mean, the invisibility and erasure of your people in history books and academia and the public consciousness up till maybe 20 years ago was so extreme. And now to have a city and the city council voluntarily pay a tax to your people. It's, it's really powerful. Do you see it as a form of reconciliation or justice or healing or all of the above? Hmm. That's a great question, Melissa. 
You know, I find myself in this very surreal kind of place right now when I remember working on shell mound issues and no one knew what shell mounds were a little over 20 years ago until we started doing that work. And, and now to find ourselves in this place where cities are actually reaching out to us to ask if they can partner with us. And I don't know if it's so much reconciliation or if it's any of those things. I feel like we're at a beginning of trying to create partnerships where we could begin to do the real education. I think there's so many people that sit in these places of city council and county seats where they don't know the real history of where they sit. What's the history of the land that they are supposed to be taking care of? They don't know who the original people are. They don't have those relationships. They, like you said, we're taught about, in, you know, like taught about in fourth grade and then we disappear. I like to call it a white paper genocide that continues to happen. And so I don't know, I think it's a beginning of something. I think it's gonna take a lot to heal, but I think that we're at the, at the very beginning where people are listening and wanting to do something different, are thinking that they can do something different. I think that they're finding the power to move in different ways. And I think that it's really important that, to say that it wasn't us that pushed them to do that. It was actually a city council person who had the consciousness himself to take it to his other council members without us coming to city council meetings, without us having meetings with anybody else, but really pushed this to do, to do this and wanted to do this on behalf of the city to try to take care of something that he felt was missing that it was beyond just changing the name of a park, mm -hmm. that there was beyond that, but also bringing us into conversations about how to extend education in middle school and high school in that city so that Ohlone people aren't just talked about in fourth grade, but they're talked about in middle school and mm -hmm. high school. How do we partner to do those continuous, that continuous education? And so I like to say that it's a partnership, that the tribe and Segorite Land Trust is really interested in having these partnerships with all the cities that are in our territories and that we're looking forward to more cities the same thing that the city of Alameda did pay Shumi and create relationships in different ways mm, fantastic so it's kind of like a seed it's just a beginning right it's just a beginning of something that really probably should have happened a long time ago but that it's happening now is a good thing so it's a seed for the future in that kind of uh, partnership. Yeah.
The Native Seed Pod is produced by the Cultural Conservancy with generous support by Tamil Pius Trust. To contribute to our polyculture and to find out more information, please visit us at nativeseedpod.org or nativeland.org. And that reminds me, I'm sure we are at the Native Seed Pod, that one of the areas that we've interacted, Sigour Taylor Trust and the Cultural Conservancy, is through our love of seeds and our love of plants and native foods and food sovereignty. And I'd love to hear you share a little bit about some of the the seeds that are important to you. I know you manage a few different gardens and partnerships with farms. And what has it meant for you, especially the last year or two, this brutal year of COVID, to really have seeds rematriated and land rematriated and be able to enact some of that food sovereignty again? Thank you. This year has been amazingly, like everybody knows, it's been difficult and it's given us time to reimagine things in a different kind of way. Sigorte Land Trust actually started giving food away this year. And thank you for the partnership with Cultural Conservancy that we were able to give out even more food. It's something that we didn't think that we were going to do, but it was a necessary tool to have for our communities. And we started because we have a partnership with Giltrack in Albany, and there was a farm there that we had been tending to, but it's on UC Berkeley property. And when COVID hit, they closed the entire thing down. But there's all this food that's growing and going to waste. And so the farmers there talked UC Berkeley into allowing us to do that. And so we went out ourselves and harvested the all COVID safe and got together a list of elders, people working on the front lines, people with small children that couldn't get out and have access to fresh food and started delivering. And then the restaurants closed down and then we had access to food that the restaurants were not cooking. And so we were giving out a hundred boxes of food a week to all of these families that would not have been able to get it otherwise. Mm -hmm. And so that's a whole different kind of food sovereignty when you're Mm -hmm. talking about indigenous communities that hardly have uh, access to fresh food as it is. But COVID really showed us how important it was for us to play that partner role to ensure that our families were safe, that they had fresh foods to keep them healthy, and to do that work. Mm. Other things that we've been doing that's been amazing is that we also this past year was able to open up a park in the city of Richmond Mm. called Oakway. And and we worked with a beautiful artist to create boulders that were there, but also a raised garden Mm. that we could actually, we have, we're the only ones that have permission to harvest out of there. And so we have California medicinal plants growing there. We have uh, foods that are growing there and our staff and, and the kids go and they take care of the land there. So we're doing those kinds of things and collecting seeds and and propagating new plants of chia and Mm. California strawberries and Mm. our dogwood and all of these different kinds of things because it's, and it's really introducing our staff 
to all of the ways from the very beginning, from from um, from collecting the seeds to planting them to transplanting them mm -hmm. to harvesting them. And because we haven't been able to open up our lands because of COVID this last year, it's it's given, I think, our staff a whole different way of looking at how to take care of the lands in a different way. And so it's really, I think people are connected more to the lands in that kind of way. And the ways that they're able to see, take to really look at the seasons, to really mm. look at when uh, to, to harvest seeds, to really look at our elders like Bernadette to help mm -hmm. us with that seed collection, to really look at how do you use those seeds, not just to propagate, but as food. And so all of those are wonderful, but also working in connection with people from around the Bay Area that gift us seeds mm -hmm. or gift us plants that we're able to put in our different gardens. It's given us a different way of looking at and just deciding how do we want to plant food and what works together with each other. You know, I think that's one interesting thing is that our folks that work with us don't necessarily come with any experience as farmers mm -hmm. or at working with the land. You know, our folks are younger people that are indigenous, that grew up in urban settings, that never had access to land, had never had relationships with the land the way that we now have, are learning how to, uh, to do permaculture you know, for the first time, what's that even word mean, right? And, and it's the, you know, and it's actually our own teachings from a long time <laughs> exactly. ago that now has this new word attached to it. And it just, you talk about seeds and I see these young people working with us as those seeds, right? Yes. Those young people that are being, they're, they're growing and seeing how it's connected to their own cultures. It's connected to their own social justice movements. Mm -hmm. It's connected to all of these different ways of, of looking at how has food affected them? How has food affected their family members? How does it, how can we change that now? Trying to create little gardens even at mm -hmm. their own homes. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's beautiful to watch that growth because we know that we're, enabling them to change the next generation right so i really see that as the biggest seed is that is that we're we're really propagating these young people to do that work for us when we're not here anymore and i keep telling them i'm not going to be here forever so you guys have to take it <laughs> and do something with it and i think it's so beautiful to see the imagination that they have of what they would like to see and then moving forward and doing it Mm -hmm. yeah. So much creativity, right? Mm -hmm. And so much healing happening through that process of reconnecting to our ancestral plants and seeds. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we see that too. So we're growing plants, but we're also growing future leaders, like mm -hmm. you said. Yeah, we're growing land stewards. We're growing future elders, future mm -hmm. ancestors. Yeah, beautiful. One last program I'd love to just hear a little bit about is the Himetka program that I know your comadre, uh, Janela, has really been leading up and heading up. But it's like this resilience hub. So tell me a little more about that. Oh, yes. And we're hoping to partner with yes. you here on this land. We can't wait. Yes, we can't wait yes. either. But, um, you know, we, you know, LaShawn land, the first piece of land that was given back to us is in this, in Sobrani Park in Oakland. And I live a half mile walk from there, right? Yes. Which is a dream a and it's blessing. on a, a blessing. And it's yes. our, my ancestors make me laugh all the time because it's along LaShawn Creek, which we were named after, right? Yes. And yes. so 
but it's also in one of the most poverty-stricken areas in Oakland, right? It's like maybe a mile from the airport and, and this one part of Oakland that nobody thinks about, right? There's two parts of Oakland that nobody thinks about. There's West Oakland, West Oakland. and Deep East Oakland mm -hmm. that nobody thinks about happening. And Janella has in her mind, she said, you know, we're in one of these neighborhoods. And if you look at climate disaster or man-made disaster, those are the neighborhoods that nobody's gonna come and save, right? Yeah. And that we need to figure out how do we be self-reliant? How do we use our sovereignty on the land mm -hmm. that we have to ensure that we're good hosts Right. For our for not just our people, but for the neighborhood that surrounds us, that there are these touchstones in these different places where people can go in case of disaster, places that will have first aid and traditional medicine, will have food and an outdoor kitchen, will have water, water. catchment systems mm -hmm. and fresh water and hopefully solar power pretty soon. Mm -hmm. But it will be that place, right? With this arbor there that has this center fire that brings people there that's safe for everyone. And so that's what this, mm -hmm. Hameka in our language means a place where we all gather, right? And so we are dreaming of creating Hamekas in different places. Hamekas here at the Huron Shadows, mm -hmm. Hameka at the Hummingbird Farm in, in, mm -hmm. in San Francisco, another Hameka in West Oakland. So that we begin to dream that there's these places when something happens. As we know, even during COVID, our skies turned orange about a year ago and there was all of this stuff. We ha couldn't breathe. We couldn't breathe. We, we couldn't, couldn't breathe. breathe. So we also had, you know, N95 masks that we can give to people in the neighborhood and, and make sure that people had stuff that they needed. And so it's important for us, you know, it's a traditional teaching that we all have, right? Absolutely. Is that as good hosts, we are supposed to take care of our guests on our mm -hmm. land. And the best mm -hmm. way to do that is to ensure that we have these places available here in our territories to do that kind of work, that there is a safe place for people to land in those kind of disasters, that we have a, have those places set up. And so we're looking forward to partnering here on this land. I see that you guys have so much in place starting. Yes. And so what else can we do to yes. help to, to do that? And, you know, and creating these quarterly meetings where we can just help each other figure out what else can we do to strengthen those hamekas that we have in our territories to make sure that we take care of our guests if something happens. It's such a powerful vision and so inspiring and we're just excited to create our own hametka here um, with Segorite Land Trust here at Heron Shadow and learn from you and share. We've, we're growing food here, we have water here, you have other medicines there because if we have a fire here we need a safe place to go. If there's an earthquake down there, you need a safe place to come. And we even started it this weekend with folks camping together on the land. So we know that we are building good kinship and, and safety zones together. And I've heard, you know, some tribal names are often something like those who prepare well. Mm. You know, and it's like we ha when we talk about thinking of seven generations, right? We really mean it. <laughs> we really mean it. And so we've got to prepare. We're in for a really interesting times over the next decade. 
And we really have to rely on our resilience and our kinship. And I think your Hemetka Center model is just brilliant. And we're excited to keep, keep it flourishing together. Yeah. 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 So great to be here. And so good to see that all of our folks stayed here on the land and they were so comfortable and taken care of and had that fire here that they can sit yes. around and it was so beautiful. So thank you so much. Thank you, Karina, for your your incredible leadership and, and wisdom and humor and hard work. So you're really a beacon, a North Star for a lot of indigenous people locally, nationally and internationally with Segurite Land Trust and all the models, the you know, models that you've created and that we've talked just a little bit about. So just one last question, what's next? What's next for Segurite Land Trust? What's next? I, I've heard stories of little funds and other land projects and what are you excited about oh my goodness <laughs> yes let me count the ways <laughs> so many things we are actually going to be starting a land fund which the ashumi is a tax for anybody that lives in the bay area that works or plays or lives there that can help to pay that tax the land fund is for anybody in the world that wants to help to support the work in buying land. And we know that the Bay Area, where our traditional territories are, is one of the most expensive places in the world to buy land. And so we are looking to fund a way to buy land in our territories, a way for us to really create sustainability for people that work with us and our community, looking at at some time down the future, maybe a piece of land that holds a roundhouse and mm -hmm. to bring that back into our territory that hasn't been there for 250 years, a way for us to really bring those those prayers back onto the land in that different kind of way. Um, looking forward to hopefully having a land return to us in the city of Oakland, in the Oakland Hills mm -hmm. at a place called Sequoia Point. And, and it's up in Joaquin Miller and it, overlooks all of the mm. bay and it's amazing and how do we begin to look at what is that going to be and how do we begin to tend to that land using traditional ecological knowledges bringing in our plant relatives that were supposed to be mm -hmm. there taking the invasives out of there beginning to you know use and i know it's so scary for pe people have to come back into right relationship with fire and how do we begin to teach that in small increments mm -hmm. in that land so people can begin to say, okay, they could do it in this little tiny area. Maybe we can move to this next piece. That's and right. so begin to take care of it. And because I think people don't understand that when we see forests or up in the Oakland Hills, there's like all of these trees. It was never like that, mm -hmm. you know? They've, mm -hmm. oh, there's overgrown things. Wow brush and things that shouldn't be there and that's what puts us in danger it's not fire itself it's the way that we don't tend to the land and and so we're hoping that we're going to be able to use those kinds of ways to do that to to really work with the young people and i'm not just talking about the 20 year olds and the 30 year olds but these little people yeah. these little people that began to say feel like this is who i'm supposed to be and this is how i'm supposed to be in this land to watch my grandchildren run around Lashawn and to see them really feel like they belong to the land again is different than living on your traditional land and not having a place to be and so giving that next generation that ability 
to feel like this is where they belong and, and that they're from that land. And I think that that's what that does. It just gives a, a sense of, of belonging again. And I think that that's what the disconnect has been since colonization. So that your children can really grow up as Chocheño is Lishan people speaking their language, connected to fire, connected to the native medicine plants in a whole new way. Yeah. True decolonization. Yeah. And a whole new old way. And a whole, a whole new old way. Chimigwitz, yeah. <laughs> thank you so much. Niji Kuei, you are a dear, dear sister friend. I really cherish you. Oh, thank you so much, Melissa. Love you so much. Mm.